This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. August is the month of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It is also a month for reflecting on the Fatima message, not so much necessarily on speculations about the third secret of Fatima and its contents, but on whether we are living the Fatima message. Are we praying, fasting, picking up and carrying our crosses? Are we breaking those sinful habits that send us to confession? Are we seeking out sanctity? Are we engaging in acts of reparation for the sins against the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Have we ever kept the five First Saturdays devotion? Are we wearing the brown scapular and keeping the duties associated with it? Are we praying the rosary every day? If we are, are we making any move to pray a full 15 decades of the rosary every single day? Are we praying the rosary well with devotion and intention? Are we living in accordance with our state in life? I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. For you today, I have a short instruction from St. John Vianney on the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Yesterday, I had an old oath to the Immaculate Heart that was drafted and said by a king of Portugal centuries ago, which I hope a member of the clergy will rework for our times. Also, a reminder that the Feast of the Queenship of Mary is this month, though it lands on a Sunday, so its observance as a holy day of obligation gets folded into the Sunday Mass. With all that said, St. John Vianney on the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The Father takes pleasure in looking upon the heart of the Most Holy Virgin Mary as the masterpiece of his hands, for we always like our own work, especially when it is well done. The Son takes pleasure in it as the heart of his mother, the source from which he drew the blood that he ransomed us, the Holy Ghost as his temple. The prophets published the glory of Mary before her birth. They compared her to the sun. Indeed, the apparition of the Holy Virgin may well be compared to a beautiful gleam of sun on a foggy day. Before her coming, the anger of God was hanging over our heads like a sword ready to strike us. As soon as the Holy Virgin appeared upon the earth, his anger was appeased. She did not know that she was to be the mother of God, and when she was a little child, she used to say, When shall I then see that beautiful creature who is to be the mother of God? The Holy Virgin has brought us forth twice, in the Incarnation and at the foot of the cross. She is then doubly our mother. The Holy Virgin is often compared to a mother, but she is much better still than the best of mothers, for the best of mothers sometimes punishes her child when it displeases her, even physically. She thinks she is doing right, but the Holy Virgin does not so. She is so good that she treats us with love and never punishes us. The heart of this good mother is all love and mercy. She desires only to see us happy. We have only to turn to her to be heard. The son has his justice, the mother has nothing but her love. God has loved us so much as to die for us. But in the heart of our Lord there is justice, which is an attribute of God. In that of the Most Holy Virgin there is nothing but mercy. Her son being ready to punish a sinner, Mary interposes, checks the sword, implores pardon for the poor criminal. Mother, our Lord, says to her, I can refuse you nothing. If hell could repent, you would obtain its pardon. The Most Holy Virgin places herself between her son and us. The greater sinners we are, the more tenderness and compassion she does feel for us. The child that has cost its mother most tears is the dearest to her heart. Does not a mother always run to the help of the weakest and the most exposed to danger? The heart of Mary is so tender towards us that those of all the mothers in the world put together are like a piece of ice in comparison to hers. See how good the Holy Virgin is. 
her great servant St. Bernard used often to say to her, I salute thee, Mary. One day this good mother answered him, I salute thee, my son Bernard. The Ave Maria is a prayer that is never, never wearisome. The devotion to the Holy Virgin is delicious, sweet, nourishing. When we talk on earthly subjects or politics, we grow weary, but when we talk of the Holy Virgin, it is always new. All the saints have a great devotion to Our Lady. No grace comes from heaven without passing through her hands. We cannot go into a house without speaking to the porter. Well, the Holy Virgin is the portress of heaven. When we have to offer anything to a great personage, we get it presented by the person he likes best, in order that the homage may be agreeable to him. So our prayers have quite a different sort of merit when they are presented by the Blessed Virgin, because she is the only creature who has never offended God. The Blessed Virgin alone has fulfilled the first commandment, to adore God only and love him perfectly. She fulfilled it completely. All that the Son asks of the Father is granted him. All that the Mother asks of the Son is in like manner granted to her. When we have handled something fragrant, our hands perfume whatever they touch. Let our prayers pass through the hands of the Holy Virgin. She will perfume them. I think that at the end of the world the Blessed Virgin will be very tranquil. But while the world lasts, we drag her in all directions. The Holy Virgin is like a mother who has a great many children. She is continually occupied in going from one to the other. In addition to that letter from, or sermon from, St. John Vianney on the Immaculate Heart, I have an excerpt from a letter of St. Maximilian Kolbe also on the Immaculate Heart and its representation of God's great mercy in our lives. The burning zeal for God's glory that motivates you fills my heart with joy. It is sad for us to see in our own time that indifferentism in its many forms is spreading not only among the laity, but also among religious. But God is worthy of glory beyond measure, and therefore it is of absolute and supreme importance to seek that glory with all the power of our feeble resources. Since we are mere creatures, we can never return to him all that is his due. The most resplendent manifestation of God's glory is the salvation of souls, whom Christ redeemed by shedding his blood. To work for the salvation and sanctification of as many souls as possible, therefore, is the preeminent purpose of the apostolic life. Let me then say a few words that may show the way toward achieving God's glory and the sanctification of many souls. God, who is all-knowing and all-wise, knows best what we should do to increase his glory. Through his representatives on earth, he continually reveals his will to us. Thus it is obedience and obedience alone that is the sure sign to us of the divine will. A superior may, it is true, make a mistake, but it is impossible for us to be mistaken in obeying a superior's command. The only exception to this rule is the case of a superior commanding something that in even the slightest way would contravene God's law. Such a superior would not be conveying God's will. God alone is infinitely wise, holy, merciful, our Lord, creator, and father. He is beginning and end, wisdom and power alone, and love. He is all. Everything other than God has value to the degree that is, is referred to him, the maker of all and our own redeemer, the final end of all things. It is he who, declaring his adorable will to us through his representatives on earth, draws us to himself and whose plan is to draw others to himself through us and to join us all to himself in an ever-deepening love. Look, then, at the high dignity that by God's mercy belongs to our state in life. Obedience raises us beyond the limits of our littleness and puts us in harmony with God's will. In boundless wisdom and care, he will, his will guides us to act rightly. Holding fast to that will, which no creature can thwart, we are filled with unsurpassable strength. 
Obedience is the only is the one and only way of wisdom and prudence for us to offer glory to God. If there were another, Christ would certainly have shown it to us by word and example. Scripture, however, summed up his entire life at Nazareth in the words, He was subject to them. Scripture set obedience as the theme of the rest of his life, repeatedly declaring that he came into the world to do his Father's will. Let us love our loving Father with all our hearts. Let our obedience increase that love, above all when it requires us to surrender our own will. Jesus Christ crucified is our sublime guide toward growth in God's love. We will learn this lesson more quickly through the Immaculate Virgin, whom God has made the dispenser of his mercy. It is beyond all doubt that Mary's will represents to us the will of God himself. By dedicating ourselves to her, we become in her hands instruments of God's mercy, even as she was such an instrument in God's hands. We should let ourselves be guided and led by Mary, and rest quiet and secure in her hands. She will watch out for us, provide for us, answer our needs of body and spirit. She will dissolve all our difficulties and worries. Those were the words of St. Maximilian Kolbe, which I think pair nicely with those of St. John Vianney. And for those who wonder about what he said about obeying our superiors in all things, and remember he qualified that with a, well, with the words of, we are not due to obey things that contravene or go against the, the will of God. I think that's important in our times, and that's why many of us are not engaging in disobedience by resisting the move to end the Latin Mass and the allying of the Church with the Leviathan. But again, this is a Sunday, and I usually leave those things to the week, so that's all I'll say on that for now. Anyway, let me know what you thought of these... Uh, short letters and sermons by St. John Vianney and St. Maximilian Kolbe in the comments, please. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.